Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, if you like our other podcast, Wag the Doug, and I don't know if you're curious if regional podcasting in Canada can be like a sustainable going concern, you now have the ability to support that show directly with five bucks a month. And if we get enough people doing that, that show is going to move from monthly to biweekly and we'll have a whole new way of uh, making podcasts work. So just go to wagthedug.com to sign up for five bucks Canadian a month for a show that holds Premier Doug Ford accountable. Go do it. There's a code of silence in newsrooms, and this summer it broke. We were never supposed to know about all of the big and small ways in which racism shapes the news that gets reported. Rank and file journalists are supposed to keep that stuff to themselves. But now we know. A CBC journalist, a woman of color, returns from covering street protests in Baltimore in 2015 with quotes from black men about their encounters with the police. Her boss won't let her use the quotes on the air because she can't prove that the names the men gave her are real. It's a standard that she has never been asked to meet before. After five years of silence, she goes public with the anecdote. A group of 12 global news journalists send an internal complaint to management about a global news story on the Black Lives Matter protests. The story looked at the protests, which it called riots, from the perspective of white Canadians living in the U.S. who felt uncomfortable with them and who called them a, quote, improper way to protest. Global news management says it will try to do better on diversity and then weeks later lays off six of the journalists who complained. The National Post runs a piece by a marquee columnist denying that Canada is a racist country, written from the columnist's perspective as a 73-year-old white man and citing no evidence. After newsroom employees complain, management concedes 
in an internal town hall meeting that the piece was, quote, indefensible and a, quote, fuck up. An audio recording of that meeting is then leaked to a rival news source. And over at the Toronto Star just last week, in response to this summer of racial reckoning in newsrooms, Toronto Star Management announces the creation of a new role, an internal ombud, whose job it will be to field concerns from black, indigenous, and other racialized newsroom employees when they have concerns about editorial-related discrimination and bias. And when that new role is announced, marquee columnist Rosie DeMano writes an email calling that role a, quote, fucking abomination that she will not submit to. And she then sends that email to every single Toronto Star employee. It soon leaks. And after that, 62 Toronto Star journalists sign a letter decrying DeMano's email as reprehensible and racist and decrying DeMano as a bully who has degraded her colleagues for years. That too leaks and is published by us. The other stories I mentioned were reported in The Walrus by Pacint Matar and in Vice by Manisha Krishnan, respectively. We asked Rosie DeMano if she wanted to comment to us, and she said, nah, but thanks for asking. But the star's new internal ombud, Shri Paradkar, is going to join me in a minute. Shri is also a well-known Toronto Star columnist who's been writing about race and gender for years. She's worked as a journalist in Bangalore, Mumbai, and Singapore, as well as Toronto, and she wrote a book called Betrayed, My Cousin's Wrongful Conviction for the Murder of Her Daughter, Arushi. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Ian William, Carolina Fernandez-Diaz, Colin McCone, Mel Taylor, Gord Morgan, Christopher Heinemann, Samantha Hogg, and Brent. Hello, my name is Brent. I'm an education student from Edmonton, and I support Canalan because the reporting and shows you guys do are excellent. I especially enjoyed the Thunder Bay series and the Candlelog Common series on the pandemic in our nursing homes. And it really helps me keep track of what's going on in Canada because I tend to focus at staring at the dumpster fire south of the border. Keep on doing what you're doing. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. I really appreciate you uh, finding time to chat. Oh, no problem. Yeah, it's, I'm supposed to be on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this week, that's been a little bit, a little bit of a pipe dream. 
Well, I'm sorry for our role in, in, in resting you from your vacation. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. I might as well. Hey. Yeah. I, I have a feeling it was going to, it was going to get interrupted anyhow. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Congrats on the new gig. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What is an internal ombud? I don't think I've ever heard of that. I mean, I've heard of an ombudsperson at the CBC and other media organizations, which is a, a variant on the public editor, but that's not exactly what, like, what, what is this role? Can you, can you describe it to me? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's probably the first in Canada to, you know, which is why you may not have heard of it. It's not a public editor job, but much more of internal for staff who've been traditionally unheard, which basically means black indigenous people of color, the few, I should say. It could be, uh, you know, women in different positions. It could be people with disabilities. Anyway, people who are not typically heard or valued to have a safe space because it's the most marginalized who have the most accurate view of what's wrong or how skewed our coverage is. Uh, in an ideal newsroom, all of this would exist. But I think this is the Toronto Star and hopefully other media now starting to accept that this is not a reality for many of the marginalized people in their own newsrooms. And so they've created this position where because I am also a union person, I have enough seniority, you know, I can maybe be a bit of a buffer or I can advise them what to do. I know the newsroom well enough. Instead of going directly to the manager, they can come to me. They can go to the manager directly and that's fine and I'll continue to do my column. But if they don't feel comfortable, then they have someone else they can come to and not face any reprisals. What's an example of a case that would require your attention? Say we have, for instance, and I'm just pulling this out of my hat. I'm not saying it actually exists. Let's say there's a story that there's um, a rapper, let's say, you know, who's been shot or there is some violence around that. Mm -hmm. And you have a story and that has one side, you know, that tells you the police side of the story. And maybe there's a reporter who's already written just the rapper side. And now they've done a follow up story, which has the police side and not put the two sides together. For most people reading it, they may not know that this other side already exists. And they're only going to read uh, this police statement and it's going to look you know, assuming it's a black rapper, it's going to start looking like it's an anti-black story because it's giving an institutional point of view and it's not balanced out. If there is somebody in the newsroom that says, oh my God, this is a problem and I don't know whom to reach out to, they might tell me and I, I, I would have the authority if it is online to say, hey, pull it back for a sec, let's work on that, you know, and I would also just call the digital editor, the assigning editor and let them know what's going on. So you would have the authority to, to hold the piece back? Uh, not hold. Hmm, do you mean when it's online? This was unclear from the announcements. What are the powers of this role? What can you do? You said it's a safe space for uh, people who are marginalized or unheard to come yeah. and, and talk. The idea is that this will have an impact on workplace situations and on the editorial content. So what, mm -hmm. what specific so, powers do you have to work with? Power is an interesting place to go to. You know, look, we do, we talk a lot about decolonizing and one of the main tenets of decolonizing even our newsroom, and this is something we've learned from our, you know, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit leaders, is your sharing power. Less, you know, that I'm this independent place of power that people can come to and I will make things happen. More, what do you need happening and how can I enable you so that you are heard? So that's a subtle difference. In terms of power, the only, like, you know, in, in how we understand it, in terms of, I think, authority is uh, maybe what you're asking. Mm -hmm. I would say the only place where I would maybe directly just say, hey, pull that back, is if something's on social media, for instance, and somebody from the office points it out to me internally saying, hey, this is a problematic tweet. This is a problematic headline. It's online. And I might just, and if it's truly so and I'm there, I might be able to tell the homepage editors, hey, can you pull that back? But if there is a problem in, say, how a story has been assigned and the reporter has a problem with that, then I would just tell the assignment editor that there is a problem with a story or, hey, do you want to consider these other options? And then maybe, maybe if we have a quarterly review, maybe have like a list of things where we went wrong, what we've learned. Since nobody has done this before, this is going to be a lot of learning as we go. 
but a safe place for learning that so that there are no reprisals and there's no awkwardness because race as a subject or discrimination as a topic is so loaded and so sensitive that it's it'll be good to know that yeah you can discuss those issues freely without worrying about somebody's defensiveness or fragility whose idea was this role i got it from the cbc i think their uh, media guild had a demand for the management one of those demands was we need to have an internal ombud and so i took it to irene but as it turned out irene a few weeks ago which i unbeknownst to me had floated an idea of having uh, someone in an advisory capacity and she was thinking of someone external so that it's not one of the managers at the star and she recognized i think that i would have the trust of our staff as well so then we went back and forth hammered out some of the details you know explicitly stating no reprisals uh, things like that because i want to make sure that i build in uh, protections for people who do come uh, forward and and also you know have the option to walk out if i really need to because again i'm also of an identity that's i'm not black and i'm not first nations methi anyway so i'm not as marginalized but i still have some some glass ceilings Have you been doing this informally anyhow for a while? I was. I was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a whole dialogue about how the labor of trying to finally address racism in newsrooms itself becomes kind of distributed in a racist way. You're continuing your column as you take on this new role. Are you getting paid more for doing this new thing? The, yeah, there is a um, the union has this kind of a thing in the agreement that you can take on like an acting manager role and there's like some differential for that role that you get so yeah uh, based on our union agreement i'll be getting whatever the terms are there okay. but uh, w- more than the pay it's that we now acknowledge that it's taking time as well now i'm hoping that it means i don't have to do saturday sunday or late nights or early mornings i'm hoping it means that now i can say okay it's one whole weekday right now um so i'm hoping that i can get some time back so that i can also be there for my family so shri i immediately understood this role when it was announced and i thought it was actually to the star's credit and a good idea there's another way of looking at this is essentially that this is a pressure release valve we don't want to read our reporters publicly calling us out Uh we're going to create a safe space for them to go and be heard but we're not going to give this person any specific authority and for all of the nice talk about sharing power a newsroom is like a dictatorship and there is uh, a strict hierarchy of who can make decisions and who trumps who and we're not going to give this person any specific uh powers and this is kind of common to the public editor role or the ombuds role in a lot of organizations it's looked at as sort of a um Uh, something for management's sake more than for either the reader or staff uh you know something must be done we did something something has been done hmm it's really cynical um <laughs> thank you i try <laughs> but yeah i mean that's why irene gentle and i had all that back and forth because um i wasn't born yesterday and i don't want it to be just a checkbox I'm going to go out on a limb and say neither does she without you know just just based on our interaction so I don't think there's any point wasting anybody's time uh with a checkbox arrangement here which is what I think what you're saying uh, comes down to in terms of power I mean I I don't understand there's a part of me that doesn't actually understand the lure of what that power would mean power to do what you know like i am not i'm not interested in hiring and firing people i'm not interested in shaming and blaming people um but i am interested in a newsroom that will reflect all the various communities but that will also center around black people and indigenous people right and that will center around not just reflecting the um struggles and celebrations of these people but also make sure that we have black people and indigenous people in the newsroom mm-hmm. and make sure that we have a newsroom that is safe for them that is friendly that will also promote them that will value them right that's the biggest thing the biggest change in all newsrooms right now has to be understanding all the racist assumptions that we've carried in our decision making and start valuing people non white people as equal 
Now, there is a third interpretation of, of this role, and it's not one that I really would put much stock in uh, as a point of debate, but I think it's a political reality, this third perspective in, in your specific workplace. And that is that your new role is a fucking abomination. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that that is worthy of your laughter. However, it was something that was sent to every one of your colleagues by the most famous, and I think within this Toronto Stars culture, a very powerful person, and that is uh, Rosie D'Amato, who I think, if I'm not reading too much into her email, sees this as a level of micromanagement on her content, uh, something Im- impeding her ability to express herself or something like that, and one that she's very angry about. And as ridiculous as I find that, most specifically because there's nothing about how your role has been described that would suggest that you are going to be editing her copy, it is something that... Uh, I think a lot of people in the public agree with. Certainly within the star, you had 62 people sign a letter decrying Rosie DeMano for saying that. But that leaves a lot of people who didn't sign that. And some of them had other reasons that, you know, they might be involved with the union, so they can't go against Rosie if they, you know. But some of those people might agree with her. And it made me wonder, like, wow, this role that Sharia is stepping into might be from the get-go a very divisive place and the authority of it might be something that is not universally accepted within the newsroom. Like, are you at the center of a coming Toronto star newsroom culture war? Ooh. Oh, wow. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way at all. Um, look, there was nobody doing a race and gender column uh, on staff until I did it. Right. And that itself for a lot of people, that itself is a very divisive role. Like the idea of talking about race at all is considered divisive. Mm -hmm. So none of this is new to me. And I'll tell you in a general sense, um, anything to do with racism, anti-oppression, any kind of oppression, whether of sexuality, ability and all of that. If if it didn't have resistance, it wouldn't exist. So by definition, anti-oppression work, equity work has to have opposition. That is part of the job. I have faced opposition, public opposition to what I do since the time I began. So I'm not speaking here specifically of a reply all, but I'm saying generally. And so, I mean, it's more of the same. And what do you make of that position that Rosie took, that, that this is uh, micromanagement, another layer of, uh, it's, a, it's an abomination that's against the principles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. I mean, look, Jesse, I have a lot of thoughts about that, but everyone's entitled to their opinion. And I, I think I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I did forget was to voice my protest at you guys for publishing the names of my colleagues who signed on to that letter. We had a vigorous newsroom debate about whether or not uh, that was uh, what we should do or not. Tell, what, tell me why we got it wrong. Because uh, honestly, it's the youngsters. You know, you saw that there were radio room people there, guys. They were like, you know, people who've just been like there for three, four weeks and they've put their names on this. And they I'm sure they believed it was an internal document. Uh, whatever. I mean, I know that's naive. And You're all that, sure that they believed it was an internal document? Oh, well, I'm going to go in good faith and assume that. Uh, there may be one. Of, I'm not saying every single one of them, but um, I think they would have, you know, just just the idea of them being open to public scrutiny, to future, you know, people for their careers. Are they going to be seen as troublemakers, marked as troublemakers? Um, and some names are more visible than others, right? Of those uh, journalists mm-hmm. of color, especially. And those are the names that will stick out. Those are typically the names that will be penalized uh, if there is ever any penalty to this. And so that just worried me a little bit. And I thought, you know, it was possible to say that there were 62 journalists, many of whom were, you know, of, of different seniority levels, um, different races. And it was wonderful allyship, frankly, wonderful allyship. But um, I I do feel a little bit worried for the youngsters. Yeah. We worried about that, too. And I think that you you make a, a decent argument for the other side. And ultimately, we had conversations about, well, if we did not feel as supportive as we do towards the sentiments in this letter, would we also hesitate? 
And also, to the extent that we cover the Canadian media, uh, how much news worth do we put on the names that are included and the names by omission? And might that be a document that in time becomes more and more important? So ultimately, I was definitely on the side of we publish things here and we can't we can't take responsibility for the outcomes, but we can't be oblivious to them either. But it wasn't an easy call. And yeah, yeah. no, I can I can see why there was I can see there is some news value to who all signed it, because there's a there's a wonderful story there. I just worry about the consequences for their their future in journalism. I, I hope there's enough of them, and there are senior people there. I, I, I hope there won't be any retribution, and that I was part of our, yeah. But no, I don't believe there will be reprisals, honestly, at the Toronto Star. I just meant in general for their journalistic life, given what we've known of this industry, that I don't want them to have that risk. But hopefully, times have changed enough that maybe that's a fear that's misplaced. You seem so comfortable in a role of opposition that that actually you've occupied for a long time. I mean, you know, we don't have to reach for hypotheticals when it comes to race in the Toronto Star. Uh, Desmond Cole uh, losing his column, essentially walking away from his column after he was told that he had to choose between being an activist and being a columnist. That You took a position on that and it was a position against the Star's position. It was, yeah. That, that was one. Look, I mean, you know, my very first column, even before the one that I wrote on the star and Desmond Cole, which I found to be a very unfortunate parting of ways because I, I mean, wow, can you imagine if we still had him? What a, what a great and powerful voice that would be. Um, what an asset the star could have had th- this past absolutely. summer and, and, and prior no, but to that. Anyway, like, you know, and not just, you know, like Desmond has so much to offer, right? There's so much wisdom there. And so, yeah, I think we're all poorer for it that he's not at the star. But even before that, like my very first column that I wrote as a columnist was about diversity in the media and how the lack of it is a form of oppression. I think I disagreed with my editor-in-chief, that was Michael Cook at the time. And so it was seen as something subversive, but, you know, in a nudge-nudge, wink-wink way. Then by the time I wrote the Desmond column, it was like, oh, really? You're taking this? Oh, my God, you're so brave. And then by the time... I did the uh, Maxime Bernier <laughs> column, which I completely disagreed with having him uh, invited to the editorial board. By that time, there was enough subversiveness in the newsroom that I actually got a an internal award that we call the Holy Joe for it. And so, again, you know, not everybody's going to agree. In fact, I'm certain there were people who were, you know, probably rolling their eyes. There might have been. But how can I let that stop me? You know, if I consider the long arc, and don't get me wrong, I sound uh, comfortable right now. Some of this stuff does wear me down. It has its uh, it has its impact. At the same time, you know, if I think of honestly and without being too corny, I think of my work and I think of when my kids are older and they read it and their kids read it, will it stand the test of time? Or mm-hmm. are they going to be ashamed? And I'd like to think it would stand that test of time. So then all of these other attacks that may come, opposition that will come, is then to be expected. Yeah. I mean, you have a very optimistic and sunny disposition towards something that um, it sort of describes a wonderful vision of the newspaper as a place that can contain multitudes and withstand a lot of internal contradiction and can have a falling out, you know, with Desmond Cole that you can excoriate them for, but maintain your position there as somebody who can excoriate them from within the pages of the Toronto star. You've published the details of your exchanges with John Hondrick, the former publisher. You've done things that I think a lot of a lot of people who don't feel a lot of power in newsrooms are like, wow, that can be done. And that speaks well of the star that for whatever its faults, it can sustain that. I like to think of a newsroom that way. I like to think of a news organization that way. That That's, I think, what we do at its best. The star is complicated, though, and it's hard to just conclude that it all kind of comes out in the wash. Like People get hurt along the way, and the star, because it makes such a public commitment to progressive values and to these Atkinson principles, you think about things like your, your colleague Ravina Alok's um, suicide, and there is a racialized aspect of that. You think about the experiences that a lot of young women had at the star and a culture that some of them felt was predatory. There's no simple answer to this, but I guess you're still committed to the project and you still feel like it's a project that can work. The project of my current job? 
the project of, of, of the star's role in a civil society trying to, I guess, account for its own lapses and shortcomings and, and ultimately come out as, as, a, as a social good and a social benefit. I, my God, yeah. If we didn't have that hope, then why are we doing what we do, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's a profound shift afoot in the Toronto Star, but also in, I hope, in Canadian media. I mean, I think of, you know, all these brave, really brave young um, journalists, black journalists, indigenous journalists coming out, speaking against their employers publicly. And it is a risk. Don't get me wrong. Just because, you know, people see things out in the public uh, doesn't mean that people were just, you know, so relaxed and they're just having fun. They're not just relaxed about it. There is a risk. And they don't know. Nobody knows the fallout when they go to, you know, when they attach their name to something that's subversive. But does the star have its flaws? Yes, of course, of course. And that's why I think the idea of having an internal ombud is an acknowledgement of that flaws. Really, by the time you come to a place where you can have an internal ombud, you are saying that we haven't been able to do this on our own and that's why we need this position. What saddens me deeply is, you know, you referenced some of that earlier with the you know, young women, mm-hmm. there have been there have been people across newsrooms in Canada who've had their esteems crushed, decimated because of either, you know, a personality culture, nepotism, all sorts of things that the media will not tolerate in another industry. We will not tolerate it among politicians, in uh, law, anywhere else but we will hypocritically enforce ourselves. And, you know, we talk about uh, BIPOC journalists and a friend of mine who is, uh, who is black used to be an intern way back, you know, in the late 90s. Um, she was then, I think she was, she had just graduated from journalism school. She's no longer a journalist. Very quickly, she stopped being a journalist. And I never stopped to think about why that was. And even for her and she and other friends like her, who were women of color who stopped being journalists, this moment, what happened in the last couple of months was a moment of not just a an acknowledgement, but a deep grief and realization that they actually had internalized the inferiority that this industry had foisted upon them. And so not only did we lose all the stories and the perspectives and the access that these women would have had, but we crushed them in the process. And so I think my job is to make sure that we never, never do that to another black or indigenous journalist or a journalist of color in our newsroom. Never have somebody's esteem so crushed that they feel that their stories are not worth telling. You're taking on a lot. I mean, that's a that's a big job to try to make sure that that never happens again. And you're taking on a lot in terms of being like, if this is a question of representation and your identity does matter for this, you acknowledge this, it's up front in the way you write about your job. You say that you have a Brahmin privilege. And, and even in my conversation with you, you, you want to make it known, you can't speak for Indigenous journalists, you can't speak for Black journalists. The complexities of this are many. It's a big task that you're taking on and putting on your own shoulders. It is, and I am one person. Somebody, you know, a senior journalist messaged me the other day and said, just remember, you're one person, so don't take on too much. And I won't. I, you know, I'm going to try to remind myself. I still have a column, so I still have an accountability to the people, and I'm definitely accountable. This is not, I don't have a savior complex here. You know, I, I, am, I am accountable to the principles of uh, racial justice and social justice that I learned from black leaders and from First Nations Métis and Iwi leaders, right? So I have to be as accountable. And what I saw in the last few days is while the role is that I support other people who are marginalized, instead, what has happened is they have come together to support me. And so that is another example of this power that we spoke about where it's not top down. It's not something that, you know, I'll, I'll sit on my throne and dish out my support. It flows in many directions and it's all needed. You know, everybody has different vulnerabilities and it's all needed. So I know it sounds, you know, kind of corny, but um, 
but I, 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 I'm done with that colonial top-down sort of working style. And I'm hopeful that we have a newsroom where we can just pitch in our ideas. The one tip that I have for all journalists often is, you know, treat every BIPOC journalist who comes your way as if they are Daniel Dale. You know, just pretend they're Daniel Dale and whatever they're saying, give it the same value that you would do if they were Daniel Dale. And then then we might have a fair chance. There are voices, and a lot of them are younger voices, whose response to all the racial injustice in the Canadian media is burn it all down. What I hear in your analysis is that there's worth to these institutions and they should be reformed because if you basically throw everything on the garbage pile, it's we're living in like a post-truth world where... It's, it's a scary place. I'm a big fan of the concept of burn it all down. Where I have a limitation is I don't have the imagination to see the alternative. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that other people don't. And when people who say burn it down offer, you know, when they have an alternative vision, I'm all for it. Um, I do feel that the media as a concept of accountability can withstand not just tinkering and, oh, let's just include some, you know, brown faces in white spaces, as it's called, but actually make internal change. Uh, I do think it's possible. It's, it's you know, it is possible to make that, that decolonization within existing structures possible and then therefore see a radically transformed new space. The way you describe all these things, it's so complex. In India, you describe yourself as basically white, and then you describe in Canada systems that work for white people only. But in Canada, perhaps you're not basically white. Uh, you, you write, it was my inevitable racialization that led to a profound consciousness of my identity as a non-white person. Uh, this evolving awareness led to your current life-defining role as the race and gender columnist. One thing you pick up on, on Twitter where I spend too much time is a lot of people who don't understand how that would be life defining. Um, People for whom anti-racism in a previous generation was about like, let's not talk about race so much. Let's not think about race so much. Let's be colorblind. And to hear people saying that that is a, uh, a life defining role to be the race and gender columnist. Can you talk about this inevitable racialization? I understand the people who who were colorblind more than they might think because that's where I was once. I I shudder to think of how privileged and blind I was to racism when I first came to Canada. I literally had no idea and assumed, yeah, Martin Luther King did something in the past and everything was okay and racism is something that happened in the past, which is why it took me so long to understand what was happening to me was racialization. I did internalize a lot of inferiority. How I spoke was inferior, how I dressed was inferior. And I just thought, oh, I just need to change to fit in and everything's going to be okay. If I only wore these clothes and these colors and wore my hair like this and tried to change my accent and, you know, just changed a little bit, then it would all be okay. And then you come to that inevitable point of realization, you're never going to be one of them. And at that point, it's it's a very painful point where you, you know, to even, if you've never thought of yourself as racialized, I was never South Asian, I was never non-white. Those were not definitions that I ever, I just never thought of white and non-white until I came here and until I was forced to think about it, until it was foisted on me. And it takes a hell of a lot of confidence. In my case, as an immigrant, it took me having to go back and to realize, oh, wait a sec, no, I am normal. Nothing's actually wrong with me. Nothing has changed with me. I started to think maybe, you know, health-wise something was wrong. Maybe maybe I had fooled myself all my life. Maybe my confidence was misplaced. And you go through so much trauma and pain, all because you're not white. And when you come to the recognition that you are devalued for something as superficial as your skin color, you recognize the lie that is colorblindness. And you recognize who is comforted by the idea of colorblindness. It's only people who don't ever face racism because of their color, their skin color. And so once you recognize it and then you start, in my case, um, I began to read and follow a lot of black thought leaders and Truly, it's life-defining because black feminism, 
and black learnings put me on the path of liberation. It made me understand why it's important for me to value myself and to stop fitting in. Fitting in was not important. To be authentic was more important. And to be authentic, meaning to own everything, including the, including the uncomfortable bits of my own Brahmin privilege. Once I have this, I don't care how I sound. I don't care if I'm loud and not neutral and, you know, too dark, too light, too whatever. It doesn't matter. I can hold my own because I am somewhat liberated. There's that word again, though, uh, uh, the uncomfortable parts of your identity, that this, this di- discomfort. I mean, that feels like the word of, of the moment. This is all so uncomfortable. And you can that discomfort leads to anger for people who just say, stop talking about race already. Or, you know, and then there's sort of laughter from the right. Watch the left eat its own tail. Uh, you know, the, 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 there's a whole critique uh, amongst right wing Twitter of institutions like the Toronto Star that is uh, gleeful and mean and mocking. And that makes people uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for all of the journalists who've come forward on Twitter with articles, documenting things that like they don't want, they wanted to just do their jobs. They don't want to have to call out bosses. It's so uncomfortable for the managers, for the institutions themselves. They had to be dragged kicking and screaming as an employer. It's been uncomfortable for me. This is uncomfortable stuff. And I think a lot of people have remarked like, oh, it's just division and this is hell that we're in. You know, it's just gotten to be so much conflict all the time. And I read your tweet, apropos nothing at all, I'm here to say I love and support young journalists slicing through layers of obfuscation and challenging the old guard on issues of social and racial justice. And the word love there. I think back to when I started Canada land out of an impulse that like, there are all these problems that no one's talking about and no one's willing to talk about. Let's get uncomfortable. Let's create a space for people to get uncomfortable. And I didn't know what I was asking for because I ultimately ended up making myself very uncomfortable as well. But ultimately there's maybe a naive bottom line belief on the part of people like ourselves who've chosen words and communication and reporting and, and hopefully the pursuit of truth that you got to love it. You you got to love any, any shift or change that, that breaks a silence, right? Like you got to love it. If people are talking about things that they were afraid to talk about and, and as uncomfortable and as painful that is, and I appreciate that it's more painful for some people than others, it's got to be good, right? Change has got to be good, but I do want to juxtaposition discomfort versus the violence of racism because we know racism kills right that's the cost of racism yeah and so if um and casteism and so if on the other side of the ledger is discomfort then i don't want to spend honestly too much time dissecting how that discomfort feels and whether you know we can withstand it it's like yeah whatever just deal with it because on the other side is 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 utter violence. And the trouble with thinking too much about comfort and discomfort is then we start patting ourselves on the back a little bit. You know, like, see, we were uncomfortable, but we got this done. And that's when we start being happy with incremental change. Um, And that's not acceptable because meanwhile Mm -hmm. people are dying and 400 years of it, right? And we... It can't be fast enough, which is why I completely sympathize with the burn it all down, because who's going to wait for incremental change? So the discomfort, the guilt, all of that, accept it, push it aside, move on, act. Right. And and, and this is yeah. where. Yeah. And I say to journalists, you know, do not, for God's sake, we need to stop asking, does racism exist? We need to stop even asking, was what so-and-so said racist or was it actually not racist? I think just ask, are you coming in the path of anti-racism or are you enabling anti-racism? And I think that's a simple place to start. So we don't have to worry about, you know, libel and, you know, sensitivity around is somebody racist because that seems to be such a trigger word for white people. Think in terms of anti-racism and that path. And are you in the way or are you helping it? And, and I think uh, you're, you're too polite uh, to say what's suggested there, which is, 
a person like myself should stop patting myself on the back for enduring some discomfort because the, the, the impacts are, are far, far greater than discomfort. I'll, I'll take that. Um, and I guess, I guess the, the last thing I want to contemplate is I have to, uh, I have to hold out some hope for incremental change. I think that for a lot of people, and I don't exclude myself from this necessarily, the discomfort is about something else, which is essentially that power is being is being challenged, and ultimately it's about power. Privilege, uh, as 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 toxic a word as it is, is really nice to have, and nobody wants to lose it, right? But- and I think I think that people are feeling that they're that they're they're getting rattled, and their the positions of privilege are being rattled, and you know, just giving up a position of privilege is is uh, I don't know what the historical precedent is for people just sort of like handing over power and privilege. People but, fight, but but it won't happen. I mean, nobody's giving up anything. If no, I mean, you know, you're really not. Like, how how is sharing? Like, you know, it's so wrong to think of sharing power as being giving up power. I mean, that's again, that's a colonial perspective. Oh my God, if we give, if we share, we are going to be weakened, and they will do to us what we've done unto them. You know, and, and you know? I mean that 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 is the psychology underneath it is that I think that that white people know what's been done, and they know like there's a sense of like what justice would look like. So I, if I, you know yeah. that, though, if people know that, then that's all the more terrible that they do nothing to stop it because then then let's stop talking about human rights and egalitarianism and all of those fancy things that we use we meaning you know the collective we here canadians use to uh, hold ourselves up as some kind of an exemplar to the rest of the world and just say no that's not at all who we are yeah. we we are okay with um, racism and eugenics and the rest of it we believe we are already there we are not so what can we do to make that image that we have of ourselves real. What is the sacrifice that it's going to take? It's going to take us being truthful. It's going to take us being truthful to our um, historical injustices. Not just I'm not just talking about residential schools, but also treaties, treaty rights, equal funding for First Nations children, and and so much. There is so much every field, right? And which is which is why there's another pet peeve I have with Canadian media, that we talk about racism because something racist happened. And that's not, you know, racism permeates every sector of what we do. And racism should be a lens that we apply, all of us apply to every decision. It cannot be, it should not be a separate beat or a separate uh, you know, now let's talk about racism and let's call these black people and ask them what they think about racism. Like as if just because you're black, you're supposed to have all the analysis ready because you were just, you know, you have the lived experience. Right? There's so many more nuances. We are so racially illiterate. And I and I wish we would just learn human rights from the get go, you know, recognize how to bring your identities and be aware of your identities, recognized in the classroom onwards to everything that you do after that. This was the reason I did a whole one-year fellowship in um, Education Without Oppression, the Atkinson Fellowship last year. The problems start at a very, very young age in Canada. My last question to you, in in, in three to five years, what's the best case scenario? Uh, would it be that the role of the internal ombud at the STAR uh, lives on and is a recognized part of the way things work, or would it be that it's uh, no longer necessary? Ah, the second. I mean, I, my idea of success would be to have uh, both my roles not needed anymore in Canada. But um, I don't know if three to five years is a realistic goal for that. And if that's the case and your column and the internal ombud role uh, are no longer needed, then what will you do? <laughs> What will I do? Uh, I don't know. I might go back to editing. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> honestly, that, yeah. Jesse, honestly, I when I became, when I decided to become a columnist on this very contentious issue, it was like I had taken a flying leap off a cliff. I knew that, you know, there was no no more safety net. I was on my own. Nobody ha- at my workplace had done the job before me. I was going to be navigating something that was going to get everybody's backs up. And I just thought, let it fall where it may. I'm going to go with my conscience. 
and I just did it. So now it's too late for me to start thinking about plans for myself. All of this is just still leaping off the cliff wherever it takes me. That is your Canada land. If you like this show, help us make it and get ad-free versions of it. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. You can do it in seconds. Email me your thoughts about what you just heard, if you care to, at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I do read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at canadalandshow.com, where you can listen to the bold return of Wag the Dug. The senior producer for this episode is Kasia Mihailovich. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.